let me bring in uh, Ryan Grimm of the uh, Intercept, uh, the Bureau Chief. Thank uh, the DC Bureau Chief. Thank you for doing this. I know you're busy. Uh, so yeah, my pleasure. Let me start with the horse race, which I hate, but I saw a I can't keep up with it. But I saw a tweet. I don't know if it was an hour ago saying that Pelosi, Colin, if you could put it up, that Pelosi was telling members that she, there would be a vote. Pelosi told moderate Democrats in private meeting today she is bringing the bill to the floor tonight. Uh, so that I think is a reporter for The Washington Post. So are you hearing that this is firm that they're going to vote on this infrastructure deal tonight or it's kind of ever changing? It's it's not firm. You know, it just means she hasn't backed off yet. Uh, she was saying that she her strategy is going to be a stare down where she just keeps the vote open as endlessly and tries to pressure people into flipping and, and voting yes, and also is hoping that she can get Republicans to bail her out. Republicans have said they're not going to help. So that's really unlikely. And the problem with the stare down is that you're allowed to come in and just, you, you vote with these electronic cards, you, you dip your card into the thing, and then you walk back out. She can't stare you down if you've left. And it's a gorgeous day out here in DC. It's like 70 degrees. It's perfect. It's like the, the outdoors is 20 feet away that she can't physically keep people on the floor. I just um, asked Jayapal, uh, who is the chair, as you know, chair of the, the Progressive Caucus, if she thought the vote was going to happen. She said, I don't think it will happen, but if it does, we're ready. And you're starting to see even rank and file Democrats come forward. Grace Meng, New York Democrat, who is not really associated with like the firebrand progressive wing, you know, just posted on Twitter, like she's out, like, you know, it's, it's, it's both or it's neither like she's, and she used the hashtag hold the line. And I think what that reflects is that they, they know that they're very likely going to be in the minority next year. Like the, just because of the structural disadvantages that they, that they have. The Democrats. And, yeah. And the, yeah, so yeah. the best chance they have to stay in the majority is to actually deliver something that benefits people. But even if they do that and, and they lose at least they will have had this chance to legislate. Like they're, they're, they're looking at this as like do or die. You know, they spent their whole careers, you know, to, to get in, into Congress. And this is, the, this could be their last chance for the foreseeable future to actually write and pass legislation. Mm -hmm. And what is this? Uh, it came out in Politico today, kind of find it convenient that this came out today that Joe Manchin, if you could put that up, Colin, uh, Manchin and uh, Schumer, I guess, met over the summer and there was this memo, I don't know if it was a, a binding agreement, that Manchin put forward $1.5 as his number on reconciliation. Of course, sprinkled into there was a lot of means testing. It couldn't be debated before October 1st, which is tomorrow. Um, that note that this $1.5 could not actually, none of it could be spent until money from the uh, earlier package was spent. Uh, Schumer apparently signed this. So a lot of people online are saying, oh, this is all theater. Schumer and the Democrats already knew they wouldn't get beyond 1.5 trillion. That's not that's not exactly how these work. So what this basically is, is a counteroffer from Manchin. And and. Uh, hello. And so Schumer signing it. This is my dog, Iris. <laughs> Schumer signing it just is an acknowledgement that he received it. And then if you note it, if you, you can like click through them, the political story, you can read the thing itself in, in the nuances of the legislative negotiating strategy. What this, what this was, was like an opening bid from him. 
Like I'll do 1.5 and you got to, uh, you know, you got to weaken it in all of these different places. Got it. And let me ask you about Pelosi because supposedly, supposedly um, Pelosi wanted these two together and supposedly Pelosi was on board with the progressives for this 3.5 trillion, but it seems like she's working overtime to get this infrastructure deal done. So, I mean, I, I'm not shocked that Nancy Pelosi would moonwalk, but why is she working so, so hard to get this infrastructure passed? Like you said, getting Republicans on. Board? Right. It's uh, it, she's, she's certainly working against her previous own interests. Um, you know, she, she had, she had been the one who said, and I, I actually had the quotes up here. She said on June 24th, um, we will not take up a bill in the house until the Senate passes the bipartisan bill and a, and a reconciliation bill. If there's no bipartisan bill, then we'll just go when the Senate passes a reconciliation bill. And then she said, there ain't going to be no bipartisan bill unless we're going to have a reconciliation bill, which was memorable because how often does Nancy Pelosi say there ain't going to be something? So she understands the entire strategy. Um, partly uh, what I've been hearing is that this is beef with Schumer. Like really? she's uh, she's up she she's upset with how Schumer has handled this. Um, really? she's upset with how Schumer handled the didn't allow the House to um, uh, to to play a part in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Thinks he's making a mistake by go, going into some showdown with McConnell over the debt ceiling, um, and that that could have that could have some influence here. The other the other argument is that she promised the Gottheimer gang that she would try to do this. And so she's living up to her promise, but she, and, and is try and is trying to make a, a show to the moderates that she's a good faith actor here, but is not actually really trying to push it through. She wants to show like, in other words, she wants to demonstrate to them that she tried and that the progressives really are standing firm. I want to play this clip uh, from Cori Bush today, which I thought was pretty illuminating uh, on CNN. This is absolutely absurd. We are talking about people's lives and livelihoods. We're talking about people who need relief now. We're talking about those who elected us to come here and bring home deliverables because some of them were already struggling pre-COVID. And for him to say that it's good enough to, you know, let's push some things to the side. Let's lower this number. You know, we want to make, you know, those, his, the, his requests. Are he talking about regular everyday people in our communities? Because if he's not let me introduce him to some and as a matter of fact he can come and speak with me i can tell him what it's like to be a regular everyday person needing the benefits that will come with a real reconciliation package which we made the deal was already the, so the compromise was the 3.5 trillion so if he, he if he needs if, if he just wants to talk to somebody about it like come talk to me and i'll tell you what it's like to not be able to pay for your child care to not be able to pay for your medications and your rent at the same time we can talk about what it's like to not be able to go to college because you cannot afford it. I, you, he and I can have that conversation or he can come to my district and talk about it. This is the fact that one person who is not affected by what would come out of this, this Build Back Better Act. He's not affected by it personally, but the people in our communities all across this country are, they deserve a voice. The people have to win. And it is unconscionable that he can stand puffed up 
and hold the line on something that hurts people now and to say that I'll toss you some crumbs right now and then hopefully you can say you ate. It's not good enough and I won't stand for it. So that's like the most aggressive I've seen any progressive against mansion cinema, like directly calling them out like Ro Khanna to a certain degree did. But uh, that's pretty much the most aggressive I've seen them at all on this. Uh, I want to compare that to part of my interview with Ro Khanna, where I kind of suggested to him, uh, why don't you guys leave D.C. and kind of go, pro go, go hold a rally on their doorstep? Here's what Ro Khanna said. So I don't really get why the strategy wouldn't be. And granted, I'm not in D.C. Maybe I have an outsider's point of view. Why not say, yeah, no, uh, this many people wanted six trillion. We've already gone down to three point five trillion. Now, myself, Senator Sanders, the whole gang is going to West Virginia, is going to Arizona. Instead of trying to negotiate with corporatists, go on these people's front doors and put pressure on them. It seems to me a mansion cinema, they, they never actually have pressure on them because the media kind of slobbers over them as centrists and the progressives. It doesn't really seem there's any rallying the base. I, I think that's one thing progressives. I don't agree with progressives who have called you all sellouts and all those things, but it doesn't really seem like you're rallying the troops because they would follow you if they see you fighting. I think the mobilization we need is to get more progressives into the House elected and into the Senate elected. I'm not sure mobilizing it in Manchin's district where Trump carried it by 30% is actually what's going to move him uh, on these policies. Well, Manchin is, you know, he's all of West Virginia, not a district. And I would remind you, Bernie won every county in West Virginia. So it seems to me by the polls, the people of West Virginia want the majority of what's in this. I'll also remind you, Joe Manchin didn't win by that much uh, for Senate back in 2018. He narrowly won. Yeah, so I played that clip because, I don't know, I'm kind of baffled. Maybe it's just because... I'm not a creature of DC, but it seems like it would help their leverage a great deal if they would get the hell out of DC, go hold a few rallies in West Virginia and Arizona, which would be well, well attended, uh, and publicly pressure and shame Mansion and Cinema, who don't ever seem to actually have any pressure on them, real pressure. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on, but I just remember AOC's former staffers, they started a super PAC. Uh, and I think it was in January, they they started airing radio ads in West Virginia uh, going after Manchin for not, uh, you know, again, being against $2,000 checks. And he started walking it back. Yeah, I, th I think radio ads and that kind of pressure uh, where, where you come at him from a populist perspective are would be effective in West Virginia. But I don't. I don't think that AOC and Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna uh, going to West Virginia would 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 scare him. And I, I actually think he would invite that. Like, I think he actively manufactures news cycles in which he's in conflict with like an AOC or a Bernie Sanders, because back home, he thinks he may be right or wrong, but he thinks that helps him back home and makes him look more conservative and then gives him space to vote with Democrats because he votes with Democrats like 99% of the time. He just makes a whole lot of all along the way while he does it. And so he's, he tries to craft this brand that he's, he's, he's different from and in conflict with like the AOC wing of the party. So if the AOC wing of the party came and, and had a big rally in Morgantown, um, he'd be like, this is great. This is good for my brand getting hammered on the air. 
uh, as standing in the way of raising the minimum wage, standing in the way of $2,000 checks for people, standing in the way of expanding health care to people. Like, that hurts him. Because people don't, like, you know, for, so for, like, uh, for some of his voters who are just code everything in, partisan, in a partisan lens, they might not like AOC, but they like everything AOC stands for. So, so you hit him on the things that, um, that he stands for. Uh, so that's, I'm also skeptical they would, how big of a crowd they would get in, in really? Morgantown. See, I, yeah. I, maybe it's because I've been there a few times, but I think the media narrative on places like West Virginia is completely backwards. I mean, people don't, people don't realize, but West Virginia was a democratic state for basically a century. Mm -hmm. It started recently, shifting. Yeah. yeah, it started shifting right, basically, while Manchin's been a senator, mostly because the Democratic Party was not was not offering anything partly thanks to mansion who right. not who who endorsed the republican candidate for governor in 1996 and and really right, right. helped ha helped create the hinge point that, that like that was the moment where it kind of started shifting and he right. actively participated in it right so my whole point is this whole notion that he has to operate this way because his state would you know he would he would uh, pay for it if he was offering actual right. That, that's right. That's, that's, things. Right. I don't. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. As long as he could code himself as a populist, I think he'd be, he'd be fine. The one thing I would correct Cori Bush on, she said this bill won't affect him. Actually, that's not true. You know, if if the bill as written would go through, it could actually hurt his coal empire. So, yes. so it was. It's she's correct. She meant that it wouldn't help him and that he's not suffering. But in, in as a matter of fact, arguably it would materially uh, hurt him um, if well, if it if it makes the coal industry less profitable. It just seems to me at this point it is just so absurd that the media is reporting about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema like moderates. They just you know they're they're just dealing with a conservative state. I haven't I barely heard anything that. Cinema just raised almost a million dollars from big pharma and dark money. I think David Sirota and others broke that. Uh, you, Intercept just broke a pretty big story that Manchin has made 4.5 million from this coal company while he's been a senator. I think another whatever between a, one million and five million in stock options. Like this isn't like a little finger, like a little uh, finger note in the story. This is instrumental to why is it they are blocking this. And you see no mention of this. Uh, I think you guys also covered the fact that three House Democrats—I I just call them Republicans—they're they're blocking the lower uh, lowering drug prices, and they're getting all this money, like not over their career, like right now. So I don't know. You're a reporter there. Uh, is this just like do the do the people at CNN and MSNBC just think this is unimportant, or it's designed not to talk about those things? Mainstream reporters think it's rude. Oh. Like it's, they think it's, they think it's impolite. It's untoward to, to talk, talk about, about money in politics. That sort of thing, because it, you're besmirching somebody's good character. What are you, what are you suggesting by this? In, in Manchin got asked yesterday about his coal company uh, for the first time, really, by a, a Capitol Hill uh, reporter. Uh, and it was a really tense exchange. Um, Manchin said, look, it's, it's in a blind trust, which is absurd. 
Right. Um, it's a company. just like just like Trump's like, money was in a blind trust. Right. It's it's still a Trump organization. Like you know what you own. It's not like a mutual right. fund that you're and and you're just allowing your broker to like buy and sell stocks. Like it's a coal company. Like we you know what it does. And the and the reporter said, well, you still get dividends from it. And Manchin's like, said, I don't want to hear, you know, what I don't want to hear anything about it. And, and the reporter said, well, your son still owns it, right? He's the president and CEO. And uh, Manchin told him, you best, you best change the subject. Wow. Like just straight up, bet you best change the subject. Uh, so he's so basically he's, the five hundred thousand pound elephant in the room. If they dare bring it up, they're they're scolded, and basically they're afraid for loss of access. I would assume. Um, some could be, yeah, or also just a loss of prestige among colleagues, like right, like oh, this it, it brands you as an unserious, uh, you know, uh, type of person, you know, who's not following the rules for exploring the direct cause and effect between money flooding into them right now from oil, coal, big pharma. <laughs> Dark money. I mean, I was shocked when I saw the New York Times did that story on Kirsten Cinema the other day, pointing out yeah, that she was right. about to do a major fundraiser. Right. You have to. It has to be in wildly brazen to to right. to be mentioned. Uh, it's a myth that West Virginia is like this conservative state, and Joe Manchin has to be this way uh, to get reelected. Uh, well, Bernie Sanders won every single county in West Virginia when he in the primary in 2016. Every single county. West Virginia, before the year 2009-2010, had been a Democratic state for a century. It just kind of shifted to the right over the last 10 years. And if you go to West Virginia and you talk to people, they will tell you it shifted to the right because the Democratic Party wasn't offering anything. The Democratic Party wasn't actually proposing or executing any policies for the people. For the people. So... I want to play this clip from this, uh, you know, poor woman in West Virginia. She's part of the Poor People's Campaign. I want you to hear from her so you have a picture of who is the type of people that would be showing up in West Virginia if the progressives got outside of D.C. and actually went on offense and started shaming people like Joe Manchin right on his turf. 750 uh, people a day was dying of poverty before COVID even hit. So, and it's worse now. Uh, poverty was before COVID, and now it's even worse because some of the jobs didn't come back. Some of it, they're cutting their unemployment. But some of them don't have no jobs to go to, or if they do, it's a restaurant job, a minimum wage job, you know. But I thought the economy's roaring back. CNN told me. You tell me when it ever changed. I never could tell a change from before or after because the minimum wage workers were carrying it anyway. The rich ain't doing nothing investing in it and then doing nothing to take care of it. We're the, we're the ones who's carrying this country. That's, but we don't have the money to invest in it. We're carrying it, keeping it going. But we need corporations. They have got all the money. There's none going into the economy. We don't have it. There, if we had it, we would circulate it. We'd be buying homes, cars. Poor people can't afford cars. We're trying to fix up 20-year-old cars to drive. That's how bad. That's the real world. That's the real economy. And like I said, I don't know if Manchin is delusional or if he thinks we're that stupid. And that's what I want to ask him if he ever meets with me. And I want to ask him, 
what are you what is worth fighting for to you because I ain't never seen you stand up for principles my democracy you've stomped my constitution so what are you what are you really about what are you are you man enough to stand up for what because if you're not then get out of our way because progressives and the American people were tired we're done and this won't be the last time I'm in Charleston. It won't be the last time I'm down at the lottery building. So that was our trip uh, in West Virginia. We interviewed her, a lot of other West Virginia uh, working class people, voters. You are paying for this reporting as a member. I am just, I'm flabbergasted here. Uh, I appreciate Ro Khanna coming on with me, but I don't agree with him on most of what he said. I appreciate Ryan coming on with me, but I don't agree with that. Bottom line, it is politics 101. Nothing bad can come from energy. Why did Bernie, why was Bernie so successful before they screwed him in 2016? Why did he have massive rallies? Because he was calling them out by names, the establishment. And that really, really drove people. I haven't heard, you know, I've been waiting to hear somebody say these things. I've been waiting for somebody to fight against these corporate, these corporate whores the Demo, at the Demo, in the Democratic Party. So it's nice that Rokana, Pramila Jayapal, Ilhan Omar, all of them have been on uh, cable news. It's nice that they have held the line, but that's only going to take you so far. You need to go on offense. You need to galvanize the troops to rally behind you, not just in person, but on social media, to flood Manchin's line, uh, phone lines, to flood uh, Kirsten Cinema's phone lines, to protest outside of their offices in their states and in D.C. And this, you know, Ryan said, I don't know how many people will show up. I guarantee you, if Bernie, the squad, Roe, all these people show up in West Virginia, I'd be shocked if you didn't have between seven to 10,000 people at a rally. Not tomorrow. You got to, you know, you need a few days to build it up. I would be stunned because contrary to the corporate media propaganda, West Virginia, yeah, it might be culturally conservative, like, big on coal or big on um, abortion, you know, pro-life and these kind of things. Economically, that is an old union town, West Virginia, from the early 20th century. It is economically populist. That is why Bernie won every county. That is why Trump won. Trump didn't win uh, proposing tax cuts for the rich. He won because there's a lot of working class kind of shower after you work kind of people that got, you know, basically got hoodwinked by Trump's phony populist talk. Sure, they liked a lot of the terrible things, too, from Trump. But West Virginia is populist. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, somebody said populist but traditional. Right. Culturally, I would say they're not, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and, you know, major pro-choice or anything like that. But on economics, every single thing in this reconciliation deal polls incredibly well. Incredibly well. By the way, by the way. In 2018, Joe Manchin did not win re-election by a landslide. I think he won by a little over two points. So I, I it, it just defies logic to me at this point. Go on offense because the media, as we're about to play a mashup, the media is going to keep painting progressives as terrorists. They're going to keep painting them as, oh, they're willing to tank the deal. They're willing to get nothing. Well, if you keep just playing defense and continuing to go on all these shows and continue receiving the same exact propaganda and manufacturing of consent rather than you setting the tone, you 
you going on offense and having Mansion Cinema have to react to you. you. The media would be forced to cover it. And I'm not just talking just showing up in West Virginia. I'm talking why aren't more people being like Corey Bush? If you came late, let's play that clip one more time, Colin. Corey Bush, Corey Bush did not mince words on, on, uh, on Joe Manchin. Let's hear it again. This is absolutely absurd. We are talking about people's lives and livelihoods. We're talking about people who need relief now. We're talking about those who elected us to come here and bring home deliverables because some of them were already struggling pre-COVID. And for him to say that it's good enough to, you know, let's push some things to the side, let's lower this number, you know, we want to make, you know, those, his, the, his requests, are he talking about regular everyday people in our communities? Because if he's not, let me introduce him to some. And as a matter of fact, he can come and speak with me. I can tell him what it's like to be a regular everyday person needing the benefits that will come with a real reconciliation package, which we made. The deal was already. The, so the compromise was the $3.5 trillion. So if he, he, if he needs, if, if he just wants to talk to somebody about it, like, come talk to me and I'll tell you what it's like to not be able to pay for your child care, to not be able to pay for your medications and your rent at the same time. We can talk about what it's like to not be able to go to college because you cannot afford it. I, you, he and I can have that conversation or he can come to my district and talk about it. This is the fact that one person who is not affected by what would come out of this, this Build Back Better Act. He's not affected by it personally, but the people in our communities all across this country are, they deserve a voice. The people have to win and it is unconscionable that he can stand puffed up and hold the line on something that hurts people now and to say that I'll toss you some crumbs right now and then hopefully you can say you ate. It's not good enough and I won't stand for it. Thank you very much, Corey Bush. So why can't we get you on stage a little louder than that right on Joe Manchin's doorstep? I don't know, people. Am I naive? Am I wrong? I don't understand. You have people like, and I've seen Corey Bush on the ground. I covered the, uh, I covered Black Lives Matter protests in 2017 on the ground for three weeks in St. Louis. That's when I met uh, Corey Bush while she was still an activist. Hell, I got arrested covering a rally there, uh, a protest there. I, my cameraman and I at the time, we were thrown in jail uh, for 16 hours, I think it was, uh, for the, the crime of covering a, a rally live. Uh, they rounded the journalists up, then the legal observers, then the protesters. But I've seen Cori Bush. I've seen her speak before Congress. She don't hold back. She could she could raise the roof off of a, a group of people. So why are we not? I mean, we talk about leveraging our votes. Why aren't we leveraging our voices? Why aren't we leveraging? These people have massive armies. Hell, Cori Bush, AOC, you have you have all these progressives who've been, you know, ranting and raving that you're sellouts and they're and you're frauds and you don't do anything. I mean, I don't know, maybe not all of them, because some of them are just are gonna never be satisfied with anything you do. But there's a whole lot of them that have been looking for a fight, that have been looking to hear things like Cory Bush just said, that would be invigorated, invigorated, based almost taken out of political hibernation if they saw you outside of DC taking it to Joe Manchin, taking it to Kirsten Cinema, taking it to any of these House moderates, they're all fucking Republicans in the, within the Democratic Party, take it to them. So, I don't know, I'm not a you know campaign manager here. I'm not a paid consultant, 
but I've kind of been around the country for six years, thanks to you guys and funding uh, when I was at the Young Turks and now status quo. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, uh, energy, invigorating people, rallying the troops, that shit could translate to actual political achievement. We have been covering the Flint water crisis and cover up for years. I've been covering it for years. Jen has been covering it as well for years. I've been to Flint since 2016, nearly 20 times. I think I'm at 18 trips. We have broken massive stories, including two months ago, where our investigative reporting broke that top officials in former Republican governor Rick Snyder's administration erased their phones shortly before the launch of the criminal investigation into Flint. They deleted messages on their phones from the period that Flint was using the Flint River. Snyder himself obstructed justice, refused to hand over key documents to criminal prosecutors. Uh, the story is right at the top of my Twitter, if you've never read it. Uh, Colin, if you could find it uh, to just put it up on screen. Bottom line, we proved destruction of evidence, tampering with evidence, obstruction of justice. Nothing. Crickets from the media. Congress responded to it. The House Oversight Committee, they issued a scathing statement in response to our story against Governor Snyder. They said they were going to investigate it. Well, I filed up with Congress and they have basically done jack shit. I have filed up with them over and over again. Uh, if you could click on the story too, Colin. I have filed up with them over and over again. Uh, How's your investigation? Are you going to call Governor Snyder back in there? Since we proved that his administration from the top levels of the health department, the environmental department, deleted their phones right before the launch of the criminal investigation, erased all of their messages from 2014 through 2015. That was when Flint used the Flint River. Kind of if you're investigating who knew what when, you'd want to know who was talking and what were they saying in these 18 months that residents were going, holding up jug, jugs of brown water and crying with rashes on their body and losing their hair and begging the Snyder administration to help, you'd kind of want to know what were the officials talking about during that time. But even more insulting throughout all this was the fact that Governor Snyder, while he was governor, and a lot of his state officials, Governor Snyder's, by the way, his net worth is 22 I think $220 million. Yes, $220 million is Governor Snyder's net worth. But throughout the time he was governor, the state of Michigan and Flint residents, so Michigan and Flint residents, paid for the governor's criminal defense attorneys up to $8.5 million. The state of Michigan paid for Governor Snyder's criminal defense attorneys. And the whole time he said, I'm not even being investigated. I didn't do anything. Well, you wonder why he would need $8.5 million in criminal defense fees because he did, he was being investigated. We broke that the original Flint water investigation, which went on for three years from 2016 through 2019 before the Democratic Attorney General of Michigan cleaned house and fired the, the team that had what they were building a case against Snyder for involuntary manslaughter. 
the Democratic Attorney General comes in. She fired them all. She cleaned house, started brand new for some reason that nobody really knows. And then she charged Snyder with a misdemeanor. So one investigation, prosecution, was going to charge, were building a case. They weren't ready to charge him, but they were building a case towards involuntary manslaughter. Sources indicate they were 75% of the way there in building a case against them for involuntary manslaughter. A Democrat comes in, cleans house, drops all the charges against eight top state officials, recharges them later with lesser charges in some cases. So charge drops charges against certain people, certain people who were being charged with financial fraud related to the Flint water crisis because this was really a privatization scheme and fraud that led to the water crisis. And then when she recharged those people, mysteriously missing were the financial charges. Isn't that interesting? So one investigation is going for bond fraud and is charging state officials with financial crimes. The Democratic Attorney General comes in, poof, poof. It's all gone. Drop those financial charges, recharge people with lesser charges. Why would they drop the financial charges? Maybe because the Flint water crisis underneath it all there was a financial, a fraudulent financial deal to put Flint on a brand new water pipeline that was completely unnecessary. And the financial deal that led to that was fraudulent. Flint was broke. It legally wasn't even allowed to borrow more money because it was nearly bankrupt. And it had already, it was already at its borrowing limit. So a fraudulent financial deal was created. And the provisions in that deal allowed Flint to borrow more money to join this completely unnecessary water pipeline. And while that water pipeline was being built that Flint was gonna join, while it was under construction, they said, yeah, let's put Flint on the Flint River, which had been General Motors and other corporate polluters had dumped their waste into for a hundred years. And, oh, we just won't add the proper chemicals into the Flint River water when we switch Flint to the Flint River. We're not gonna add corrosion control chemicals even you know, which are added into almost all cities in America's water system because all of our pipes underneath us are 50 to 100 years old. So you have to add corrosion control chemicals, phosphates, to prevent um, to to prevent lead from the pipes the water travels through leaching into the water. They didn't add those. So already insulting enough. The state of Michigan residents and Flint residents who were poisoned by this man, Snyder, whose poisoning happened in, under his watch that our reporting has already exposed. He knew about it while they were drinking toxic water and helped cover it up while they were drinking toxic water. He did not publicly notify them and tell your children to stop drinking the water. So those residents have been on the hook to pay $8.5 million in criminal defense funds. For this governor. Well, let's fast forward to today, Colin. I mean, it's just un unbelievable. A, a, a state of Michigan board approves up to 2.3 million in Flint legal contracts for Governor Snyder and Jared Agin, who was his chief of staff while he was governor. A state board on Tuesday approved up to $2.3 million in contracts for the defense of former state officials being prosecuted in connection with the Flint water crisis. The contracts approved by the state administrative board include 
and and up to 1.45 million contract with Warner, Norcross, and Judd for the defense of Republican former Governor Rick Snyder, and up to 835,000 contract with Dickinson Wright for the defense of Jared Egan, former communications director and chief of staff for Snyder. Jared Egan, by the way, was the former, I think he was a, yes, communications director uh, for Pence when he was vice president. Warner, Norcross, and Judd declined comment through a spokesperson. Uh, the other law firm declined comment. The state has the state also has entered into contracts for former De Department of Health and Human Services Director Nick Lyon, former Chief Medical Executive Eden Wells, and former DHHS employee Nancy Peeler for their legal defense in the Flint water prosecutions. The amount of the contracts for Lyon, Wells, and Peeler would not was not immediately clear. The state financed defense costs for Snyder, Egan, and others have been a subject of controversy under the initial investigation of Republican Attorney General Bill Schuette and under current Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel amid rising defense and prosecution costs and frustration from residents for paying for both sides of the litigation. Through April 2019, the total expenditures related to Flint legal costs to law firms came in at $25 million. Quote, soon after taking it office, the Whitner administration realized it inherited dozens of legal defense contracts responsible for millions of dollars in spending that lacked meaningful cost controls and a uniform system of contract management. Whitmer's office capped state employee defense costs in January at much lower rates than had been used previously during the Schuette investigation in an attempt to curb spending on the case. Whitmer's January policy would have capped hourly fees at $225 an hour and imposed a budget ceiling of 175000 So let me get this straight for a second. Colin, I don't know if you're good at math. I don't know if you're good at math. I'm not good at math. So Governor Snyder, under his administration, the residents of Flint, I'm actually going to get out my calculator right now. The residents of Flint were on the hook for $8.5 Now we're adding, let me get the number, 1.45, 1.45, almost $10 million, $10 million. Michigan residents, and more importantly, the impoverished, poisoned residents of Flint are paying for a man worth two. $120 million Rick Snyder is worth. That's his net worth. They are paying for this governor who covered up a deadly waterborne bacteria that was in that water. He knew about it as we broke. We broke this story with the intercept. He knew about it 16 months earlier than he testified under oath to Congress. He knew that there was an increase in deadly Legionnaire's disease, which is a waterborne bacteria. It can be misdiagnosed often as pneumonia. It's much more deadly than pneumonia. It killed, the number is really untold in Flint, how many people died from Legionnaire's. He knew about it. And we proved, because we got, we, got, we got a hold of his phone records from October 2014 that showed him, his chief of staff, and his health director 
six months after Flint switched to the Flint River and just a few weeks before his reelection for governor in 2014. So we're talking seven years ago that him and his chief of staff and health director were on the phone 22 times over two days, 22 times over two days at the same exact time that Snyder's health department and environmental department were going back and forth about the increase in Legionnaires cases in Flint. And one of Snyder's top environmental officials was telling the health department, do not release this to the public. Do not make a public notification to residents of Flint about the increase in Legionnaires. Yeah, don't tell them they're, they're drinking toxic water that could kill them, could kill their children. 